0: Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. Just as a reminder for all of
1: our episodes, while we love interviewing people who fall far from the norm and interrogating radical ideas, we do not necessarily endorse the views of our guests on this show. In this episode, we interview Dr. Sarah Myers-West, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the AI Now Institute. Her research centers on the critical study of technology and culture, with an emphasis on historical and ethnographic methods. She is currently working on a project that addresses the politics of diversity and inclusion in technological communities by exploring the nexus of artificial intelligence, gender, and intersectionality. Dr. West received her doctoral degree from the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California in 2018, where her dissertation examined the cultural history and politics of encryption technologies from the 1960s to the present day.
0: Previously on different episodes of our podcast, we have done a segment to preview the upcoming interview with our guest called Loved, Learned, or Leave, and as this is a learning process for both Dylan and I, we are going to try something new from here on out where we just quickly touch on the main topics that we're going to be covering and that we go over with our guest during the interview, and then we'll do a little bit of a debrief at the end of the interview for our initial reactions with a longer debrief in our mini that come out about once a month. So for today's interview with Dr. Sarah Myers West, the main topics that we covered were the relationship between technology and power, how AI systems are reflective of social issues, including racism and sexism, the responsibility of AI technology in solving societal issues, and why diversity and representation in the field of AI is vital. I am absolutely psyched to share
1: this episode and it was such a wonderful conversation with uh, Sarah because Sarah is actually someone that I've looked up to for the entire time that uh, I've been doing this AI ethics work and it's uh, her and also AI now are the people and the group that I've probably cited the most in my own research, especially one of the papers that we talk about in this episode, the Discriminating Systems paper, which is about race and gender and power and social systems. And so it was such a pleasure to hear more uh, from, I guess, uh, the other side, right, to to kind of pull back the curtain. I I really got to nerd out uh, because, again, you know, AI Now and Kate Crawford and Meredith Whitaker and Sarah uh, herself are people that I really think of as um, people that have paved the way for the work that you and I are doing, Jess, in bringing up these radical issues, especially around power. So I was really excited to have that almost uh, felt like a personal connection to this interview and, and to Sarah because of her work
0: yeah, I definitely also have a bit of a soft spot for Sarah and for AI Now because as I was beginning to develop my career in AI ethics and deciding whether or not I wanted to even go to grad school, they played a very big role in my decision to to go into this field. And uh, now we're actually getting to engage with the researchers at this institute and we're getting to talk to people like Sarah. And that's one of the reasons why I actually love academia so much because we have these academic celebrities that we uh, engage with so deeply with their research. And then we actually get to meet them and talk to them and uh, have conversations and sometimes even collaborate with them. So it's, it's wild and it's a a really fun process and um, such a journey. We're just really excited to, to be able to do this and engage in this way. And for
1: this interview and, and some of the upcoming ones that we have with people that we've admired for a long time, we, we have to remind ourselves to, you know, like, like take a deep breath, like, you know, they're people too, <laughs> they're people too, because they're these people that, you know, we, we've really, again, we cite, we read about, and, uh, that, are really the people that we, we look up to in doing the work that we do.
0: And so for these reasons and many more, we are so excited to share this interview with Dr. Sarah Myers-West. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming and joining us on the show today. And before we get started, we just want to get to know a little bit about you, not only as a researcher, but just your journey throughout life and what has brought you to where you are today. So if you do us the pleasure, we would love to hear your story and a little bit of your background.
2: Sure. Um, Well, first off, it's really lovely to speak with both of you, um, and I'm excited about what you're doing here with the Radical AI podcast. So I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, So right now, I am a researcher at the AI Now Institute, where I'm studying the dynamics of gender, race, and power in artificial intelligence. Um, So my background is mostly in cultural studies and science and technology studies, which Basically what that means is I approach my work by looking at the broader cultural and social factors that are shaping the ways that technologies are influencing our lives. But I also attend to the material dimensions of how technological systems are built, how their politics might materialize in infrastructure. Um, And I have always been inclined to history to trying to understand um, how the past uh, is reflected in our present. Um, and so I use a combination of history and ethnography um, to try and study the dynamics of how um, technologies are produced. Um, so kind of reading our present conditions against the grain of the past, and especially in the current moment, um, really looking for moments where things might've been otherwise and what we can learn from them. So
1: for yourself, is this has this always been uh, kind of your research identity like as a child where you're like I'm gonna work for AI now at some point it doesn't exist yet but that's what I'm gonna do
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean I've always been really um really interested in science and technology from like a really a really young age um it's so funny just having this conversation makes me think back to like I'm a huge jurassic park fan like i loved that movie growing up um, and there's so much that's encapsulated in that movie that that like you can see in what i'm doing today both um the notion of hubris around technology um that it's both dangerous and beautiful um there's strong like feminist principles in that, in that movie um, and it, you know, it really tries to unpack the larger, like politics surrounding the technologies that are shaping our our lives. So, I mean, I've always, um, I've always been inclined to be interested in science and technology. And I think that that's, um, definitely, um, you know, been my course from an early age, but would I have anticipated this particular path a million years ago? No, probably, probably not like, um, like a lot of. Nine-year-old girls, I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was young.
1: <laughs> so there's a, there's a tweet that's been going around while we're recording this episode about uh, Jurassic Park in particular. Uh, oh, really? About Yeah, so th- the tweet reads, I owe the Jurassic Park franchise an apology. It is, in fact, very realistic the rich would reopen a park in spite of it consistently resulting in mass death. And uh, this is about like the COVID nineteen pandemic that that we're currently in. Uh, but I'm very interested in this intersection between um, Jurassic Park and like and sociology. It
2: encapsulates everything. I feel like Michael Crichton was an early STS scholar um, in some in some respects.
0: This is something that I wanted to ask you about uh, in terms of your path, which uh, seems to have evolved a little bit, at least uh, maybe in, in the last decade or so, especially your academic path. Uh, from what I saw in your doctoral research that was uh, very related to encryption, and now you're studying and researching things that are uh, seemingly l- quite different than encryption. So I'm wondering uh, what the path was there and how that happened and evolved.
2: Oh, great question. Um, so yes, my, my dissertation research really looked at um, the cultural history of cryptography um, and what my present research shares with um, the research that I was doing then is a concern with information and power. Um, you know, the the ways like encryption technologies are really foundationally about, um, well, I argue that they're about many different things. But one of the dominant things that um, encryption technologies um, have meant to us culturally is about being able to control access to information, to control who's able to access information or to try and um, break into um, other people's information that they're trying to keep secret. Um, I think that similarly, we see dynamics of uh, attempts to control information um, that can help us make sense of the world around us um, in the infrastructures around artificial intelligence systems today. Um, So I think that that's that's one one very clear through line. Another one is is looking at data infrastructures and data flows. Um, So one of the um, first pieces that I published um, before my dissertation work um, looked at um, the development of cookies and tracking technologies, um, and how the um, that sort of like set us on a path towards what Trusana Zuboff calls um, surveillance capitalism, um, and a you know making that move between trying to study what um, what technologies mean to us culturally and how they surface in data infrastructures, I think is very much still the project that. I'm engaged in um, over at AI Now.
1: Where I first experienced your scholarship uh, was with its entitled Discriminating Systems, Gender, Race, and Power in AI. And it's something that I've quoted a lot and cited a lot in my own work. Um, and I'm wondering if we could just start at the beginning. Uh, so what are these discriminating systems? And what do gender, race, and power have to do with artificial intelligence?
2: So. Artificial intelligence systems are largely classification technologies, right? So they're they're um, looking at massive um, data sets frequently, and then trying to comb through those data sets, um, making predictions about future patterns or identifying patterns and predicting future behavior, um, things like that. Um, and so, what they do because these data sets are largely reflective of, of wider social conditions is that they reflect and they amplify existing forms of social inequality. Um, and what I've been looking at are you know some of the, the most pervasive forms of social inequality, which are racism and sexism, which we see surfacing in AI systems. Almost on a daily basis. Um, so that's that's I think at the heart of discriminating systems is trying to make sense of um, one where are we seeing these dynamics of social inequality surfacing in AI systems, um, and then two, if we'd known that this is a problem for as long as we have, and you know we trace this back. Um, you know, I was reading articles in 1993 that were talking about. Um, issues of gender inequality. Um, back in 19, the early 1980s, um, grad students at MIT were putting together reports outlining issues of discrimination in um, at the at CSAIL. These issues stretch back um, pretty far in time, but they've they've remained really pervasive. So, um, what what needs to change? Why why haven't things changed? And I think foundationally, it's because Racism and sexism haven't changed, um, and we we need to tackle those um, deeper social problems at the root.
0: Do you think that since these social issues like sexism and discrimination, racism, they are so deeply embedded into some of our computing technologies, especially artificial intelligence, do you think that it's the responsibility of these technologies and these underlying AI algorithms to just stop the perpetuation of those social issues? Or do you think that it's their responsibility to try and fix them and solve them entirely? And is that even possible?
2: Yeah, that's a, it's, it's a big question. Um, well, one, I would be wary of situating both the problem and the solution solely in technology. Um, or, you know, even one step further and saying, you know, this is a problem of bad engineers who are doing bad things with technology. Um, there are cases where that might be true, but it's all, we also know that it's a much more complex and persuasive problem than that. Um, so I think that one, this is a reason why we need social science and humanistic scholarship, um, of which there, you know, there now is a, a, substantial amount of work, um, but work that needs to be attended and listened to, um, to really understand the complexities of of social life and and how they're intertwined with technological systems. Now, the second part is, you know, do we turn to technology to do we need to fix it in the technology? And here's where I think we need to be really careful. um, And it's important to look at the larger dynamics of power and how technological systems are implicated in power structures, because um, there is a risk that by f- trying to fix the technology, you can actually exacerbate the underlying social problem. So let's say we have a biased facial recognition system. Fixing that biased facial recognition system doesn't really help communities of color if that uh, system is then used for surveillance or for deportations, which we know that they are. Um, And so I think it's important to attend to like the much wider dynamics from the development of a technological system to its material dimensions, to how is it being used in the world and in what context um, in order to really get at the heart of that question.
1: One thing that I've heard as a pushback to my own work in the humanities, commenting on the work of technology and especially bringing that discussion of power uh, into that discussion in general is that technology has nothing to do with power, right? Technology has nothing to do with society. It's just, it's totally objective. Uh, And I'm curious from your perspective, how you would address those uh, critiques or, or challenges?
2: Uh, technology has everything to do with power. It's like in its in its you know very definition, it has to do with power. That you, you know, as a as a cultural studies scholar, that uh, so the notion of objectivity is itself a social construction. It's you know something that's produced around you know um, through. So, you know, certain conditions through rhetoric that, um, you know, gives you a sense that something is purely rational or purely neutral. Um, but we know that that doesn't really exist in the in the world around us. Um, that, uh, you know, the scientific method is something that is socially constructed as a way of proving knowledge claims. Um so You know, I would first question what do you mean by objective or what do you mean by neutral? Um, And then, you know, look at what technology is doing in the world. It's foundationally social um, and that's never going to be neutral.
0: Going back to this idea of power and the immense power that technology has over society Something that I know you've done a lot of work with in the past is this idea of representation in the field of artificial intelligence, and uh, it's definitely very important to address that these powerful technologies are being created uh, by select few individuals, so... Uh, I'm curious what you have to to say about the importance of of representation in these powerful technologies, and uh, really the lack thereof right now.
2: It's pretty bad um, in terms of you know the dynamics of representation in the field of artificial intelligence, um, and worse, it's been bad for decades. Um, so when we we're doing the research for discriminating systems, I pulled. As much data as I could possibly find on, um, you know, what is the state of representation in artificial intelligence? Um, we found things like, you know, eighteen percent of authors at the leading artificial intelligence conferences are women. Over eighty percent of AI professors are male. Um, another study uh, looked at um, awards given by. Um, you know, leading AI conferences and the Conference on Vision and Pattern Recognition, which is the leading computer ve- computer vision conference, has never in, given an award to a woman in over a decade. Um, NeurIPS has only given 3% of its awards to women over the past decade. Um, we, you know, for a variety of reasons, we don't really have good um, data on Racial diversity in the field of AI, but the um the statistics that we have suggest that it looks even worse. Um the uh the machine vision researcher and uh, co-founder of Black and AI, Timnit Gebru, found um the first time that she went to NeurIPS, which I think was in two thousand sixteen. Um, she was one of six Black people in the audience out of about. 8,500 attendees. Um, It's just, it's astonishing. Um, So the data that we have suggests that representation in the field um, is pretty darn bad, Um, but we know that the data is only, you know, one, um, the data itself is only part of a much larger story about what does representation in the field look like Um, because it doesn't account for the experiences that women and trans people and people of color have when they're working within the industry. Um, And we know that um, discrimination and harassment are rampant at all of the leading companies um, that uh, are working in the field of AI right now. Um, So. Representation matters.
1: (laughs) Some of those uh, facts and figures, the first time that I read them, uh, and this was in the AI Now 2019 annual report, uh, absolutely shocked me, but didn't surprise me, I I guess I would say. Um, And a lot of the work that that I've been doing for the last several months in my PhD program has been about white male accountability in this space. Um, And... I'm curious from your perspective, what do we what do we do? Like how do we implement accountability into these spaces and maybe even into our, our algorithms, but uh, just across the board? What do we do?:
2: I mean, I think it's really important that the onus to fix issues of discrimination in the field not only be placed on those who uh, experience it. And so I think that it should be the responsibility of everybody to um, be actively anti-racist, to be actively um, fighting discrimination in the context in which they work. Um, so I think that absolutely it, it needs to be seen as more than about um, achieving diversity or achieving representation. I think it's, it's um, more multi-layered than that. Um, and I think that it's absolutely the, the work Needs to be done by people who um, it it the, it cannot just only fall on um, women and people of color to do the work of diver- like of diversity.
0: And when it comes to diversity, especially in the field of artificial intelligence, it isn't just this one-sided problem of representation of who is creating these systems, but it also is whoever creates these systems is playing a big role in the way that they function. And so there's also this problem of discrimination in the systems themselves based off of who's creating them. So uh, how have you seen that show up in your work and how Does diversity and representation in the creators of these systems reflect in the implementation of the systems themselves?
2: Yeah, actually, that's that's kind of what a lot of my work is focusing on right now. So I don't have, um, you know, the like quick and punchy answers because it's it's going to take a lot more deep work to really clearly do the forensic analysis that's needed to um, to understand um These relationships, but I can tell you that in the research that I've been doing, you can see issues of like whiteness and patriarchy stretching all the way back to, you know, really the origin story of of artificial intelligence. Um, I would also, though, kind of push on the premise, which is looking only at the process of developing technology. Um, Because we also need to look at how, like, what do we envision these systems being used for? How are they taken up in ways that might be different from what they were designed for? Um, You know, you'll often see, you know, learning from the experiences of the disability community. um, A system might be developed um, ostensibly as an assistive technology, something that's supposed to um, address the needs of the, the disability community, but as soon as it becomes commercialized, it gets deployed for something completely different, um, and and sometimes at odds with the needs of the community that it was um, developed for. Um, so I think looking at that question of secondary use, how things that might be developed for one purpose all of a sudden become surveillance technologies, um, that that matters too. Looking at at um, the commercial imperative um, and, you know, thinking really critically about that as well.
1: So right now, as we sit in the midst of this pandemic and there are discussions about contact tracing and other things like that, um, do you believe that we're at a similar risk of those technologies turning into either surveillance technologies or being experienced disproportionately, uh, maybe even in an oppressive way to marginalized communities or communities that are already marginalized?
2: I mean, I, I am not a healthcare expert, so I I can't speak um, you know directly to any particular technology, but I certainly have those concerns, um, and I think that the underlying concern is that there's a widespread pattern of not involving the communities that are going to be affected by these systems in making these decisions or in any kind of accountability process. Um, so I think that that's where we need to start is involving, you know, involving the communities that are going to be uh, affected and potentially harmed by these systems. Um, way earlier in in the process and in a way that's actually like really meaningful and not just about, you know, the optics of community consultation, um, but really deep engagement.
0: That actually seems to be a theme that's been coming up a lot in some of our interviews recently is this idea that all these technologies should be subject to democratic discussion, but they almost always aren't. (laughs) So do you know of a way that we could try to encourage large tech companies or the creators of these technologies, especially proprietary technologies. How do we get everyone in on the conversation in these communities that are being impacted by the technology? What can we do to think about uh, those who, who need to and should be a part of the conversation when it comes to designing and creating these systems?
2: I mean, just the question of what are, like, what is a community? Um, what are the communities that are going to be most affected? Like, these are really hard and complex questions in, in some respects. And um, I think one is resources, um, you know, making sure that you not only provide resources to identifying the problem, but creating the resources necessary to enable people to engage, you know, paying people for their time, having a travel budget that can fly people out to like meaningfully participate in, in processes, um, that, that kind of thing matters. Um, but secondly, I just, you know, based on past behavior, I'm, I'm not necessarily convinced that, um, leaving it to companies to police themselves is going to be the solution here. Um, I think we can see what the incentive structures lead towards. Um, and so I think that there's going to be an important role for um, external accountability, whether that's, um, you know, regulation or whether that's, you know, protest movements and organizing, um, which we both of which we see happening um, much more actively over the past year, year and a half.
1: That's one of the things I really appreciate about, you uh AI now and and, uh, Kate Crawford and and Meredith Whitaker and all that, is that you all are are seated seated at this intersection between like the academy, the industry and like policy and regulation. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how those different domains can work together towards creating a a more equitable, um, I guess, reality for technology and AI technology out in the world.
2: So I'll I'll only speak on my personal in my personal capacity um, and not on behalf of um, anyone else at, at AI now necessarily. But um, I think that the the strongest um, form of advocacy is advocacy that's rooted in evidence. Um, and so what I'm really keen to do in my own work is to do really rigorous research that points toward, um, you know, social problems that need addressing or points, you know, where appropriate because some of these problems won't have solutions, um, but where there are solutions, you know, I I want to be doing the work um, that provides the evidence basis for them. Um, So I think that there is an intersection between doing really solid research as the foundation um and then orienting that research toward um social justice goals um that is i think at the core of of all the work that i'm doing and that i think a lot of my colleagues are doing at ai now
1: yeah and and part of what i think um is amazing what you bring to this is a humanities perspective. Um, and I'm curious your thoughts on what role the humanities has to play. You've talked a little bit about this, but I was wondering if you could put a finer point on it. What does that have, uh, what role do the humanities, I guess, what perspective can the humanities bring to these questions of technology ethics?
2: I mean, I think that the humanities play a really important role in helping us to understand the underlying human conditions in which we're, we're living in that um, enable us to provide a larger context and to understand um, the role of ideas to expand our imaginary through art. Um, You know, they're they're important lenses that honestly, if you look back through the history of artificial intelligence, they used to be much more at the core of the field. It's, you know, artificial intelligence has grown into a field that is much more narrowly technical um, over time. But it's not necessarily uh, how the field was always constructed historically. And so um, I think that there's room to recapture some of that space of possibility. And
0: something that Dylan and I do for every interview as a part of this project and this journey that we're on as we're trying to define what radical AI really is and also what, what the word radical really is is we would love uh, if you could tell us in your perspective what you think that the word radical means to you and then also in an effort to try to uplift more uh, diverse ideas, if you could explain a bit about what you think about you and your story or maybe your research interests are particularly radical in this field.
2: To me, the word radical is foundationally about social transformation. Um, it's about creating the conditions for foundational, social and political change um, and and transformation that leads towards um, equity and towards justice. Um, so in that sense, all of the work that I do is is deeply radical because it's oriented around um around causes of of justice. Now, in another sense, I don't want any of my work to be seen as radical if radical is understood as like extreme. Um, I want social change, um, social transformation to feel um, common sense, to feel necessary, to feel urgent. Um, And so, I would not, probably not situate my work as necessarily radical in that more conventional definition. Um, But in its transformational politics, um, that's that's sort of at at
1: my core. Absolutely. I'm I'm curious if, uh, maybe even just to take yourself as an example, like from where you are now, if you were looking back at yourself as uh, a younger child watching Jurassic Park and one day having this wonderful career in AI ethics, uh, what advice you might give uh, that child, and by extension, especially younger women who are embarking in this field?
2: I think probably three things. One is to develop and hold tight to a set of core values and principles. Um, to develop that, that core sense of self and what you believe in. Um, two is, is to not ever be held back, particularly if you have an interest in working um, in science and technology. To not ever be held back by you know the policing around expertise because we know historically, particularly for women, particularly for people of color, um, that expertise is defined against identity. Um, it's 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 shaped more by the identity of the the worker than about the content of the of the work. Um, so, um, so I, I think that that. That would be um, that would be number two. Um, And then number three, I think, would be just to really read widely and broadly um, as a as a means of experiencing, um, you know, the wider scope of humanity um, around you. Um, as much as possible.
0: Great. And as we reach the end of this interview, Sarah, is there a place where our listeners, if they were interested in engaging a little bit more with your work, a place where they could go to find out more about what you do?
2: Sure. Um, So I would direct them to the AI Now website. Um, A lot of my work is in publications there. Um, I also have a website, sarahmyerswest.com um, or my Twitter handle is at Sarah B. Myers.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much again for coming on, Sarah. It's really been a pleasure.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for the, the great conversation.
1: Again, we are so grateful for Dr. Sarah Myers-West taking time during this time of uncertainty in our world to sit down with us, and we hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. So as we mentioned at the top of this program, we are changing up our format just a little bit, and instead of our longer debriefs happening right now, at the end of these episodes, we're going to save them for our monthly mini-sodes that happen about once every month, as the word monthly may imply. For right now, though, we do want to debrief just a little bit and give our first reaction, because as some of you know, we actually record these pretty soon after we record the interview. So we're going to give our first reaction to this episode, to this conversation, and then perhaps add some sort of follow-up research question that we may be bringing with us out into the world from this interview. So
0: Jess, what was your first reaction to our conversation with Sarah? So my immediate takeaway and reaction from this conversation, maybe it was just because it's something that we talked about near the end of the interview, was Sarah's definition of radical. I think it was just really spot on in terms of something that you and I have been discussing quite a bit lately, Dylan, that we are trying to walk this fine line between figuring out what. Uh, Radical has conventionally meant which people typically think of as something like extreme like Sarah was saying and then what we are trying to turn radical into which is uh, taking these ideas that people shy away from and making them more the norm and I love that Sarah mentioned that she doesn't want her research to be viewed as radical but that uh, things like social transformation should feel like common sense. I think that's so spot on.
1: It's something that we've, as you said, talked about a lot, even in terms of like who do we invite on the show? Uh, because we both want to represent like radical ideas, ideas that are, are way out there and that are inviting the entire you know institutions and industry into new conversations. And also, we want people to listen, right? <laughs> and uh, I know from various parts of my own work that when you go too extreme or too out of someone's comfort zone, they stop listening. And so for us, it's almost like an ethical question, which I think Sarah's definition of radical got straight to the heart of. It's like we want everyone to be able to engage with these topics to a certain degree, and we also want to make change happen. So how do we as podcasters, right, and as AI ethicists, how do we work with different, uh, I guess I want to say, different circles of industry and the academy that stretch all the way from the conservative to the liberal, to the hyper conservative, to the hyper liberal, uh, where we're really, we're making value statements here. Like that's, that's what we're doing here. Um, and you know, we, we want people to still be able to listen. So how, how do we walk that line? And I think the answer that Sarah gave is that she is pushing for, and I think this is a quote, advocacy rooted in evidence. And maybe that's a little tough for us right now where we're living in a world where politically sometimes we talk about fake news and even truth and facts are um, being rallied against in, in certain public sectors. But I think that if we can ground our concept of radicality in inviting new conversations while also providing adv- advocacy rooted in evidence, then, then I think we're doing our job.
0: And that's something that hopefully we can continue to do going forward as we interview people who fall near and far from the norm and represent so many different uh, ideologies and values. And something else for me that I feel myself immediately reacting to from our conversation with Sarah was her uh, ideas and thoughts about what objectivity even means and how we assume or many people assume that these technological systems, especially artificial intelligence, are neutral in themselves and objective and why those conceptions of technology might be a little bit dangerous when they're misplaced.
1: For me, I think the biggest thing that I'm taking away from this conversation with Sarah is simply this concept of power and questions of like what the heck do we do with it. And so there was a there's a period in this episode where I asked Sarah, almost like a leading question, right? Cause I knew where she was going and I knew where I was going, which was this question about like, what about people who say that technology has nothing to do with power analysis? And I like, folks at home probably couldn't see me, but I was so giddy at her answer because for me, it was just like, yes, absolutely. Like you can't separate technology from power. And Sarah's answer, I think was just a beautiful way to say, this is why we do this work. Like this is why AI ethics matters in the first place, because these are real people interacting with real like spaces. She talked about materiality a little bit, and there are real uh, downstream impacts of how we interact with power. And technology is all about power because technology is all about our relationships with, with one another. And there are still so many questions for us out in the field of, okay, well, even if we acknowledge that power is at the center of these relationships with technology, And even if technology is defined by relationships, well, then what do we do with it? Like, how do we have those conversations and come together to create a world of of equity and to use our technology for the betterment of everyone?
0: Yeah, I think Sarah's words were definitely a very good introduction also for people who might be new to the field of AI ethics to understand what some of the broader underlying issues in this field are are in terms of ethics and uh, morality and diversity and representation and honestly sort of a a call not just for me and you Dylan but for everyone listening a call to remind us why it's important to do what we do.
1: Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode and for more information on today's show please visit the episode page at radicalai.org
0: if you enjoyed this episode we invite you to subscribe rate and review the show on itunes or your favorite podcatcher join our conversation on twitter at radical ai pod and as always stay, stay radical,
1: radical. <laughs> yeah <Woo. laughs> I'm so pumped up after that conversation all right